Hey TYT, I'm Nomi Konst. We're in Chelsea, Manhattan at the YouTube Space. A special guest today is Robert Hockett. Robert Hockett is a Edward Cornell professor, professor of law at Cornell Law School. He is also the senior counsel at Westwood Capital, where they do pro bono suits against folks like Goldman Sachs, among many. Uh, he was also Bernie Sanders' financial regulation spokesperson, and he was formerly at the New York Fed and the IMF. We're going to talk about something many of you may have heard of, Bitcoin, but also blockchain. And what does it mean in this economy? There are a lot of folks talking about it. There's a lot of hype. Is it going to disrupt the economy? Is it going to make the economy better? Uh, we're going to have a, a, a great conversation about blockchain and cryptocurrency. So thank you so much, uh, Robert, for joining us oh, today. Thanks, Nomi. Thanks so much for having me here. So um, <clears throat> before we get to like what blockchain is, uh, what's your background? Because you're interesting. You were at IMF, you were at the New York Fed, mm-hmm. but you're, you also have these progressive, you know, bona fides. Well. Yeah, so, so my background is actually in, 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 in philosophy, uh, and actually moral philosophy and political philosophy in particular. Uh, and that's what actually led me ultimately to finance uh, and to economics and ultimately, ultimately to becoming a lawyer. Uh, the backstory is kind of a, a funny one. When I was uh, uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, uh, I started working with a group of homeless folk who lived under a bridge. Um, and uh, sort of lived with them for a while down there. And there were a couple of things that I sort of noticed fairly quickly. One was that they didn't have any access to any kind of banking or other financial services. And I ended up starting something I called a shoebox bank for them that enabled them to sort of save up money um, because they earned quite a bit uh, during the, the, the work that they did each day, washing cars and the like. Uh, and the other thing was, was that we don't have any sort of off-the-rack business form that sort of fit what they did, even though they were working really hard and were very enterprising. It sort of struck me that they have a kind of kibbutz. They sort of combined work and life, and I wondered why we don't have any such, any sort of business form of that kind here. So that got me sort of thinking about legal-type questions and financial-type questions, and I ultimately decided to go to law school so I could be more of more help to my friends as a lawyer, um, and I decided to sort of focus on financial law subjects uh, and economic law subjects uh, while I was there, uh, while I was you know, engaged in my legal studies. Uh, and so that ultimately led to my becoming a sort of finance lawyer. Uh, but the, um, the initial motivation uh, has remained the motivation ever after, ever since. It's been basically how to sort of put together institutions that ensure a, a more just economic and financial order uh, in which we can all live. Um, and I, I was quite lucky, I guess, when I went on the job market. Usually people who have that kind of public law or I should say that, that sort of uh, social justice interest uh, want to teach public law subjects, right? Like um, uh, constitutional laws, mm-hmm. maybe the best known. Um, and the people who want to teach in the sort of business and financial law curriculum typically are more apologists for the businesses that they're teaching about or whose laws they're teaching about. Uh, so I thought I might have a neither fish nor fowl problem when I went in the market. Um, and I used to sort of laugh and say that the basically I'm a guy with a sort of uh, I guess public law heart and a private law head, and I wasn't sure how well this would go together, but it ended up working out. So I've been sort of doing that kind of thing ever since. So much so that you you were working down at the Fed, and then would go to Occupy Wall Street in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I was working over the New York Fed, it's, it's just a couple blocks away from my little place downtown, and so is Zuccotti Park, of course. And so what I would do is during the day. Um, you know, I'd walk over to work in my little suit and tie, and then in the evening I'd take my blanket with me and go and spend the evening over in the park, um, you know, sort of doing the occupation thing. And then in the morning I'd get up and go and wash and shower and go back to work, sort of rinse and repeat. Um, and so that was, it was a, actually a glorious time. It was a wonderful uh, sort of efflorescence of, um, I think, 
I don't, sort of practical utopian thinking uh, and uh, and putting aspiration into action it was really wonderful. It, it wasn't just the fact; it wasn't just the cause that was being um, uh, sort of pursued or vocally advocated. It was also the fact that um, everybody down in the park, in a sense, kind of modeled precisely the kind of society that they were wanting all of us to sort of jointly constitute, right? Mm -hmm. People would, um, you know, there were a bunch of bicycles with electric generators attached to them and people would just, you know, take some time over and pedal the bicycles for a bit to sort of uh, generate some electricity mm -hmm. and store it in batteries. Somebody sees that there's some broken glass somewhere uh, on a piece of sidewalk, walks over and gets a broom and cleans it up. There were several tents with uh, red duct tape crosses on them and these were basically volunteer doctors and nurses. There were, um, I remember there's a group of about four or five elderly uh, women who were knitting sweaters and caps for all of the young people in the park so they wouldn't get too cold once the season began to change or once the temperatures began to drop. And I forgot what we were calling, they were calling themselves grannies for peace or something like that. Um, it was absolutely marvelous. So it was a, a truly wonderful time. And it was, I think, quite regrettable, actually, that Mayor Bloomberg shut it down after a mere, I guess, I suppose we were actually camping for maybe six weeks mm -hmm. or so. Basically all of October and about half of September, and I think it was very early November that he shut it down. Really, um, I think, regrettable. It, you know, great rapport, actually, with the police who were around, too. I mean, it wasn't a disruptive group in, in any sort of civil, dis well, civil disruption sort of sense of the word. Um, and I think, you know, people who actually saw uh, the occupiers came to like them, you know. And it's been interesting because it's been duplicated in different forms in different places, and there's been a different type of reaction. Of course, Standing yeah. Rock was is probably the, the, the largest scale mm -hmm. form of, of U.S. Mm -hmm. modern, you know, the past couple of decades yeah. occupation yeah. Uh, of, of land that they owned, <laughs> rightfully so, uh, for a whole other conversation. But uh -huh. um, you mentioned utopia, and I mm -hmm. think that's a really good bridge mm -hmm. because uh, when you read about blockchain, it is discussed as from, from many defenders and people who believe in it as a, a form of creating a utopia. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's something that could bridge from where we are to that utopia. Mm -hmm. and. My my observations have been, you know, over the past decade, we've gone from complacency in the system that we've had to people actually exercising their philosophy, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, we learn mm -hmm. about philosophy in school. You studied philosophy, mm -hmm. and now people are exercising their philosophy. It's mm -hmm. being actualized. Mm -hmm. And maybe sometimes we don't understand all the different aspects because mm -hmm. it hasn't been exercised in a very long time, <laughs> right, these right. philosophical debates, but we yeah. are at this turning point, yeah. you know, yeah. because of technology, you know, economics, politics, mm -hmm, uh, there's mm -hmm. a lot of things happening at once, generational changes. Mm -hmm. What does blockchain represent to you? What is it? Yeah, so what is, so I guess maybe a couple things to say about it. Um, it's, it's a form of technology, it's a new kind of technology that, like many new technologies, offers a lot of promises and a lot of risks, right? And the key always when we're in, a, in the midst of a sort of a phase shift like right now or a, a moment, as they say, um, is to figure out a way to sort of capture all of the promise uh, and to realize all of the promise while at the same time sort of heading off uh, or mitigating or avoiding uh, the risks that come with it. So some of the promise that this new technology offers, a couple things. Um, the first is it does offer the opportunity for a certain kind of financial privacy that we all used to have and should never have relinquished or should never have had other people relinquish on our behalves without our consent. It sort of recaptures that and that's 
potentially a very good thing. So what do I mean by this? Well, as a lot of people have experienced in maybe the last couple of decades, um, a lot of your financial information uh, that your banks sort of acquire when you make regular payments with your bank cards or whatever um, is sold mm -hmm. by those who gather that information. It's sold to various marketers, to various sorts of firms that might want to find out or sort of glean your tastes or they'll look for a pattern in your sort of spending activity and then try to capitalize on that. Essentially try to monetize your habits mm -hmm. which they've learned about through effectively illicit means because none of us has ever consented to having all that information shared. And this is of course one of the reasons why you know, you're on Facebook or you're um, you know, sort of at Amazon sort of maybe peru looking for a particular book that wasn't over at the bookstore or whatever. And you get all these little suggestions popping up. Hey, you might like this, you might like that. And you know, some people find that convenient, um, but a lot of us, certainly I, find it kind of eerie. I'm sort of thinking, how do you know this about me? Why would you know this about me? Um, why are you able to do this without my, my consent? There's a kind of, uh, now in theory we could do, we could reassert privacy uh, in connection even with the kind of banking that we do right now. Um, we never should have relinquished it. This was all permitted to happen. It could have been prevented, legally speaking. There was even congressional action in the late 1990s to head it off, but then the courts ended up interpreting the legislation in a way that was much more permissive than Congress appears to have intended. And so some of the new financial, some of the so-called fintech technologies that are coming along offer an opportunity to sort of recapture some of that degree of privacy, that degree of anonymity that some people would actually like to have again. I think, I suspect probably most people would like to have that again, right? Um, so there's that, um, and there's that form of promise. Another promise that's offered by the new technology is a, a kind of security of, I guess you can think of it this way, one way to one way to one term you could use to describe what I was just kind of going through is a kind of data security, mm -hmm. right? A kind of a securing of data from unwanted gazes, right? From prying eyes whom you don't want sort of able to kind of pry open your data. Another kind of um, uh, data security would be the capacity, sort of authoritatively and definitively, to verify that some transaction has actually occurred. Mm -hmm and that it occurred between the parties who actually did transact, that it happened at exactly the time that they seem to remember having transacted, that it was for the same amount or for the right amount or the right uh, objects that were sort of transacted in. Um, and the so-called distributed ledger technology offers a form of security in the sense that you don't sort of collect all the data in the way that you might collect all the eggs in one basket, right? So like a nice example of this, you might think, go back to the 19th century, say it's the 1830s, and people own parcels of land, let's say in rural Pennsylvania, near the Allegheny River, let's say. Um, well, the way you could definitively prove that this was your parcel or this was the boundary line between two people's parcels was you'd go to the Registry of Deeds, you'd go to basically to the property registry. Now suppose that the Allegheny River sort of overflows its banks, right? and, and the, the, the property registry or the registry of deeds is, is flooded and everything's destroyed. All of a sudden there's a kind of uncertainty now about who owns what or what the boundary line, lines are that there hadn't been before. And that could have been avoided if that particular information had been multiply located, right, in lots of different places. Um, when it's all in one place, you can think of it as sort of a concentration of, of loss risk, you might say, right? All the eggs are, all, again, all the informational eggs are in one basket. One 
additionally nice feature, you might say, of the distributed ledger technologies is precisely the fact that they distribute the information in multiple nodes. It's a, a bit like the cloud in that respect, although it's a little less airy-fairy than the cloud. It's more like a, a, a network. Backup. Yeah, there's Essentially, backup. There's, it's in case of an emergency, go to XYZ space. And all of it is is all of it is is accumulated in real time, right? There's no lag time, there's no you don't have to wait for any even for split seconds any longer for transactions to clear. So there's a kind of an immediacy and a kind of certainty that can be had. How much and that's does that have good. an impact on the economy though? I mean why is that such a big deal? When I first heard that I said it's it's an overstated deal at this point okay. because we do have backup even now, right? Um, and everybody's backing stuff up on the cloud, for example, even that, right? Lots of stuff is backed up uh, in a way that it didn't used to be. Um, so the the real gain I think that's to be had here is first there is and, and well even in the privacy connection that I was talking about a moment ago. I mean, we had the wherewithal to to guarantee the privacy before too, but we just didn't act on it or we didn't hold the, our legislators' feet to the fire well enough or the court's feet to the fire enough. So it, there's a sense in which none of none of these benefits are new in the sense that it's not the case that these new technologies offer these benefits that no previous technologies ever offered. The main thing, I think, the advantage is sort of there are two advantages. One is that we get a second chance, so to speak, right? If, if this new technology spreads, we can now, without having to kind of reverse ourselves on some previous set of court decisions or some previous legislation to say, this data is going to remain private. We're not going to let them get their claws into this data on this new system. That's sort of an advantage. It's an incremental, it's pretty marginal advantage, which can be overstated, but it's at least an advantage, right? Similarly, similarly when we get to the backup or the timing, um, that tends not to be a, a serious problem these days because what we already have is pretty quick, right? There's not that much lag time, right, between payment and settlement and transactions. But there does remain a tiny little bit. And in the past, uh, there were some sort of notorious episodes back in the 70s and 80s where um, some bank ends up getting into serious trouble because some transaction that it thought had been consummated and cleared was all settled, all finished turned out not quite to have finished up yet because the data still hadn't gotten across the fiber optic cable or whatever. Um, this afflicted, the bank in question was a German bank called Herstadt and so this, the, this risk of um, a transactions being done on the assumption that a previous transaction has already been consummated when in fact that previous transaction hasn't quite been consum consummated yet, it's still a, a couple of minutes away from being consummated is now sometimes called Herstadt risk because that was the name of the bank that sort of experiences. But, you know, I suspect that you guys probably haven't heard of Herstadt risk and that's kind of, that's sort of suggestive, right? It suggests like it's a, not a big deal. Is that sort of like a personal form of, of overdraft risks? You know, kind of like that. You okay. can think of it that way, yeah. Um, so oftentimes, you know, in order to kind of optimize or sort of maximize the, the margins that are to be earned on various kinds of financial right. transaction. You don't want to, you, don't, you, you basically don't want there to be, you want to minimize any increment of time during which some bit of capital that you could be invested is actually just sitting there inert and not being productive, is not fecund or not generating anything else, right? Now this is again pretty, I mean for you or me, this is, this is pretty small, this mm -hmm. is trivial, I mean because we're, we're not rich enough for a split second to make that much difference, right? right. But if you're a big institution that's transacting in millions or billions of dollars uh, each day, you know, if you have some 
some billions mm -hmm. that are idle for five seconds, you actually might be losing money in a sense because that might have been being invested and being productive during that five seconds. And so one way to look at some of this technology is it kind of it, it trims that time and so enables these transactions to happen faster. And, or another, uh, the flip side of it is it avoids the risk of anybody sort of jumping the gun by a few seconds when they make a transaction. Again, that's pretty recondite, a pretty recondite form of risk. I mean, you and I would never experience this directly. But Which some, is interesting because the, the, those who seem to be um, pushing for blockchain the most are individuals. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that's where the yeah the utopianism comes where in. Where is this? Yeah, the, the utopianism. Ha yeah. Let's move forward a little bit. Sure, sure. Those who believe in blockchain, what do they envision? What what's the selling point, and also what's the downside that maybe is is being left out of the conversation, the public conversation? Good. Yeah. So there seems to be a kind of fantasy out there um, that cryptocurrencies, in particular, and maybe blockchain a little bit more generally. Mm -hmm in addition to offering these two benefits that I've just mentioned, offer an opportunity for there to be a kind of anarchic money system, uh, a kind of a money system that's decentralized and it's not overseen by any government authority or any other kind of central authority, that there's just a, a kind of free and spontaneously generated form of money here all of a sudden. It's almost as though we had all landed on a desert island and we discovered some clamshells and so we said, hey, let's just start using these clamshells as money and we just, you know, all of a sudden we had this beautiful sort of island life. But I think a lot of the people who are sort of thinking along these lines aren't really thinking about how possible that actually is and how desirable that actually is, right? So here's a way to, it's hard to sort of, it's hard to know exactly where to begin to, to explain why that's not a good idea or why it's sort of misguided. But I think maybe one way to do this, one way to kind of find our way into it, is to bring in a little bit of his, historical arcana that's actually much more interesting than it might initially sound uh, when I first say what it is. And so let's talk a little bit about 19th century banking, uh, banks in the United States in the 19th, in the, uh, 19th century. So up until 1863, the paper currency, the primary paper currencies that were used, were issued by private banking institutions. Right? This, is, this was the period of so-called wildcat banking, and the currencies that they issued were wildcat currencies. So the dollar was not actually a money, it was a unit of account, right? It was a unit of money, but it was not itself a money. There was no government printed money in the 19th century. Uh, states might, or certain governments might print temporary scrip or issue paper debt instruments and the like, but circulating currency of the dollar bill variety or the pound note variety, actually pound coin variety now, um, were all privately issued. So essentially what you'd get is a private bank holds a bunch of gold or other so, so supposedly precious metals in the vault, then it issues a bunch of paper currency in an amount that is some multiple of that amount of gold that's in the vault, right? And some banks were, you know, issued the paper in a sort of small multiple of the gold or other supposedly intrinsically valuable stuff in the safe. Others issued the currency in a much larger multiple. There was always a temptation to issue much more currency mm -hmm. because if you're issuing it and it's used as money, then you can basically print your own money because you can spend it too. Plus you can make loans in it and charge people interest, right? So when you have that power, we refer to it now as, uh, as seigneurage, and I'll talk, I can talk a little bit later if you like about the origins of that term, but it comes from the old French word for seigneur, for lord, because the first issuers of currencies of this kind were actually landlords, essentially mm -hmm. feudal 
feudal lords, feudal barons. In any event, if you can issue your own currency like this, it's a great thing if you're a private entity. So there's always a temptation to issue too much of it. Now, what this meant was that you know, some banks were more reliable than others, and that meant that some banks' notes were more reliable than others. And so if you went to buy something with a bunch of bank notes, most of the merchants you go to buy stuff from had like a table of how much to discount various different banks' paper currencies by. So they'd say, oh, you know, the so-and-so Allegheny Bank's paper currency is worth 75 cents on the dollar, meaning a dollar note from Allegheny Bank would really be worth 75 cents. Uh, and then, you know, some other bank's currency might be worth, you know, 90 on the dollar or 95. Somebody else might be 20 on the So there are all these different currencies, even in the same locality sometimes or the same region. And you'd have to sort of figure out which ones are worth what in comparison with which, right? Which is a very sort of messy system. But it also, so there was that. Um, uh, and it all, it's, it's almost as though everybody's speaking a different language, like Tower of Babel or something, right? It's one thing if everybody speaks multiple languages. That's cool. Right, but if everybody simply speaks different languages and they can't, they're not mutually comprehensible. That doesn't really work so well. Um, and you could sort of think of the wildcat currencies that way. They were very inconvenient, but maybe more important than that was the fact that banks were so often so tempted to kind of overissue them that there was there were regular bank runs. Right, You're so, you you would suddenly get you'd hear a rumor that the so and so bank was running out of gold or whatever, and so you think, well, you know, I don't know. That might be true. It might not be. But just to play it safe, I better go and hand in this mm -hmm. thing and ask for the gold. Everybody else has the same thought. They all do it together at the same time. They then bring the bank down, even if the bank before the rumor was perfectly solvent. Right, you get the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy mm -hmm. problem. So that's a sort of that's essentially what private currencies are, and that's sort of the way they work. Right, that's how it works. Now, the way we sort of got around that problem, or sort of ultimately solved that problem, is at some point we realized, well, you know, think about what is what is the nature of these private currencies, these paper currencies. Well, they're essentially IOUs that are issued by banks. They're promises, right? Mm -hmm. And so the bank is effectively making a promise, and if it's more or less reliable to keep its promises, then its currency is valuable. Mm -hmm. If it's not that reliable in keeping its promises, it's not so valuable, right? So uh, it occurred to us at some point, we finally kind of got the idea that, well, you know, there might be one institution that's the most trustworthy institution of all because it can back up its currency, not with metals necessarily, not with gold or whatever, but it's always good for its promises because it has it's the ultimate authority within the society and it's the ultimate power within the society and it's got the right to levy taxes and collect mm -hmm. taxes in the society and that's the federal government, right? So we basically decided to sort of nationalize the currency and make it a publicly issued IOU instead of a bunch of privately issued IOUs on the theory that that would be the most reliable kind of IOU. Can, uh, I, can yeah. I just, um, from a philosophical 30,000 mm -hmm. foot perspective, mm -hmm. it, it seems like it's this form of socializing currency. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is interesting, because yeah. when we hear about decentralization, Oftentimes, um, it's used, you know, in organizing terms from a political perspective. But mm -hmm. when I hear, I think sometimes there's there's a there's a conflicting notion about the decentralized um, blockchain, mm -hmm. and it's used almost as a comparison to politics. Yeah. But yeah. what you're explaining to me is this is 
seems like socialized currency. Yeah, it is. It's been socialized since 1863. Um, and it's been socialized in the form that we currently have it mm -hmm. socialized since 50 years later than that, in 1913. Mm -hmm. So what happened in eight, this is, is again, kind of interesting history. Um, and, and there's a kind of a broader point about, I'll, I'll make it a moment, um, about what we socialize and what we don't, or what we should socialize and what we shouldn't. And I'll, I'll come to that momentarily. But just a brief moment of uh, just one tiny bit more history, maybe, that'll sort of help make everything a little more comprehensible when we get to it. Um, in 1863, of course, there's this Civil War thing going on. Um, all of the southern states are temporarily out of the Union. Uh, the southern states, there have been moves ever since the days of Alexander Hamilton mm -hmm. to put in place a national bank, essentially, or a, a central bank, a national central bank, something like the Fed. And we even had a central bank for a while. It was Hamilton's bank. It was the first mm -hmm. bank of the United States. The southern states were very jealous of states' rights and therefore paranoid about the federal government. They were always thinking that the Fed, federal government wanted to take their slaves away. Uh, and so they tended to object to anything that was national, like mm -hmm. a national central bank. So it was very hard to get, enough, to get enough votes in Congress to sort of approve the continuation of some sort of national central bank, notwithstanding all of the benefits that come from that kind of a bank that we'll, we'll get to in a moment. But in 1863, you have this wonderful moment. The southern states that were always the ones standing in the way, just like they were the ones blocking all the would-be civil rights legislation up until the 1960s, are not in the Congress. So now you can actually get something like a nationalization of the currency or a kind of socialization of the currency. So the National Bank Act uh, was promulgated in 1863, and it basically created a new kind of bank charter, the National Bank Charter. And anytime you see a bank to this day, if it says First National Bank of X or Second National Bank of Y, that's a national bank because it has a national charter that was all made possible by the 1863 legislation. The other thing, I mean, so that's this network of national banks is interesting. But what's more interesting for our purposes is now you had a whole network of banks across the whole country that issued the same currency, not different private currencies. And that currency was called the greenback. Um, now, you know, three guesses why it was green, you know, what, what, why I'm emphasizing that it was the greenback. It was the predecessor to our current dollar. You finally had a uniform currency. Um, so it was possible to do this because the southern states were gone. It was also a, thought to be an urgent thing to do because the last thing you need in the middle of this nasty civil war that's very disruptive is an unstable currency system. You needed a reliable, stable currency system. And so the greenback became, effectively, the national currency uh, for the first time. The other thing that the national banks did is they served as outlets for U.S. Treasury securities, uh, which basically was a way, they were, they became, they were sort of, you can think of them as franchisees, in a sense, in the same way that McDonald's, you know, every McDonald's restaurant sells poison hamburger, you know, poison food. Um, you know, all of these national banks, you know, pervade this non-poison, you know, uniform, stable currency, but also these treasury securities that were used to essentially to kind of uh, put, you know, tamp down possible inflationary pressures during a time of immense government spending to finance the war effort. So, um, so that worked relatively well, but the one thing that was still missing is we didn't have a way of modulating the money supply economy-wide. Mm -hmm. Now, what do I mean by that? And this is going to take us right into what should be socialized and what shouldn't. So the thing about the money supply is, as you know, you've, you've heard about the, the economic cycle, or you've yeah. heard about recessions and depressions and, and then booms and busts. Um, there's a tendency uh, for any economy, especially an economy that uses money, that uses credit, to go through cycles, boom and bust cycles. And when they're way, when the, when the booms are way high and the lows are way low, it's basically like having bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. right? You have these just crazy careening sort of manias followed by these terrible depressions. 
that's the opposite of stability, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, the financial term for that wild kind of mood swinging is just volatility. Volatility right. just means a very high amplitude of swinging. So the reason that that happens is there seems to be a, a kind of a cycle that is, is sort of endemic in mass human behavior, it seems. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of optimism gets generated. People start, you know, building stuff or they come up with new ideas and they start, you know, employing people to make these new things that they're going to sell. People start getting excited about the new promise that's mm -hmm. offered by these new things. Right now, of course, it's fintech or it's Bitcoin. So a lot of people start putting their investment money into mm -hmm. this. Um, that, of course, fuels yet more growth. At some point, people begin to borrow in order to buy the stocks that are issued by these new companies. And now it's debt financed, and that's when you get into serious, serious trouble. Um, and of course, that's why it was such a danger sign last November when it turned out that some people were taking out mortgage loans to buy Bitcoin. Right, <laughs> but, so, so that's, that's actually, that's, and it's very hard to tell how much of it because of exactly. this crypto tenants, the crypto side of it. Yeah, and the key is there's no inherent limit as to how much credit can be generated, especially if you have a, a private banking system or a shadow banking system right. where you've got private institutions that can extend credit sort of ad libitum, right, as much as they wish uh, up within you know, until some limit, until some regulatorily imposed limit kicks in, but that's usually far too late. Well, so there's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy element here too, just like in a, in a bank run, in a boom, Everybody's sort of optimistic, and so they start borrowing in order to buy stuff, uh, to buy securities, basically assets that they mm -hmm. think that where they think the price is going to rise. And what they're essentially doing is every one of them is doing something that's individually rational. If I can borrow really cheaply and use the borrowed funds to buy something whose price is rising really rapidly, then there's what we call a spread, right, between the capital gains appreciation rate on the, on the one hand and the borrowing rate, say it's the interest rate or some other form of borrowing costs. On the other hand, people are basically just sort of legging the spread, as we say, between those mm -hmm. two things, right? And there's no inherent limit to this, or at least there's no, you can't like point and say, oh, when we get to you know 10,000 units of credit, it's all over. You, you never know when it's gonna stop. Mm -hmm. But what you do know is that at some point it will stop. At some point the credit will run dry, and then all of these people will suddenly realize, oh my God, this is sort of a bubble. This price is maybe gonna go down. I better sell it now before it goes down. Everybody sells it massively. It's essentially the equivalent of a bank run. Right. Instead of running on the bank's currency, you're running on whatever this asset is. But now here's the key. If you've incurred a bunch of private debt in order to make those purchases, then you're gonna end up in serious trouble because when the price of the asset that you bought with the debt drops, the mm -hmm. debt doesn't drop. Debt is a fixed obligation, yeah. right? Whereas the price of the thing that you bought with the debt is a variable thing, right? And those so, who bought it with with actual currency, actual cash, they also just, lose money. They lose that money. Yeah. But what's even worse is the people who lose more than their money, the people right. who are in debt. You actually get lots of people, and you remember the word that was used after the mortgage crash in the uh, about 10, 12 years ago, was people being underwater mm -hmm. on their mortgages mm -hmm. or there was a mortgage debt overhang. Both getting at the same things. The basic idea is people suddenly owed more than they owned, right? Another way to put this in sort of accounting terms is you had millions of people, literally millions of Americans, who had negative net worth. You actually owed more than you right. had. Now, that is, that's catastrophic. That leads to what the great American economist of the 1920s and 30s, Irving Fisher, would have called a debt deflation. Yeah. That's what the Great Depression was. That's what the, what the, uh, the sort of aftermath of the 09 crash was. All these people who are negative, have negative net worth, they don't spend money. Right. So all of a sudden, the entire economy grounds to a halt. So that, that's, that's ultimately a question I have is, um, from people who I've spoken to that are are in favor of 
cryptocurrency, what seems to confuse me is that I, I don't know if they just are buying into their own messaging. Mm-hmm. Is it's still built off of actual currency. You're not operating on your own desert island and mm-hmm. you with, with these shells and you're building up your own currency and your mm-hmm. own government. It's still operating in the actual economy. Right. And so their actions are having a significant effect on the greater economy. How, how, how significant could it be? Could it be a housing bubble? Could it be something, you know, especially since it's unregulated? Yeah. It all depends on how much borrowing is done in order to buy mm-hmm. the stuff yeah. first, and then who's doing that borrowing in order to buy, right? So if a few very wealthy people simply buy Bitcoin mm-hmm. with money, quote unquote, that they already have saved up or that they've already accumulated, there are two reasons not to worry, right? First of all, it's just a few rich people. Second of all, they're not going into debt in order to do it, right? So they can afford to lose something if things go down, you know, sort of head south. And, you know, they're not going to be indebted and then suddenly pull out a bunch of purchasing power out of the economy. If, on the other hand, a bunch of middle-class Americans do this and they go into significant debt in order to do it, and again, this was like, the irony here was just so delicious. I mean, you know, I, I kept saying that, okay, look, Bitcoin basically is the subprime mortgage-backed security of now, right? At least in its speculative aspect, not in every respect. But in this respect, it basically is just the, the latest object of fad investment, right? Just like subprime mortgage-backed securities were before that, just like junk bonds were before that, just like tulips were in 16th century Netherlands, just like Beanie Babies apparently were at some point in the plastics. 1990s. Yeah, <laughs> plastics, yeah, 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 the, the graduate, right? And that's the funny thing, we, we never graduate, right? We just do the same damn thing again and again and again. But so th- this was like the crowning irony was when it, reports began to emerge in, the, in November that people were literally taking out home mortgage loans to speculate on Bitcoin. I mean, what could be more ridiculous and crazy and also, again, ominous and dangerous? Because, again, it's it's not that there's no intrinsic value to Bitcoin. It's just that the speculative value is always much higher than the any so-called intrinsic value when credit is fueling the price rises, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the key. The, the, the way that the sort of snazzy economics term for this, or maybe more the snazzy finance term, is endogenous credit. When credit is generated from within the system, right, by private individuals, and in particular by banking institutions who, that, who have a statutory right, a license, to engage in credit creation or credit generation, there's no intrinsic limit to how far that can go. And what that means is people will just borrow and borrow and borrow until finally it looks to the banks like there's no more profit opportunity for them in lending. And so people can get very, very, very exposed, and lots and lots and lots of them can. And if the middle class does, then once that exposure ends up having been a vulnerability, namely the the thing whose price has been driven up by the credit in the first place, suddenly goes down, and now you've got all these people again who are underwater, who have negative net worth, and that destroys an economy. How risky was uh, the gold standard? So the gold standard was ridiculous, <laughs> um, and, and, and a lot of people, this was, again, this was a source of endless consternation um, over in Zuccotti Park uh, during the occupation in the autumn of 2011. Um, you had all these, I had all, you know, all these fellow utopians, I'm, I'm a utopian, I, I, anybody who knows me will tell you I'm a utopian, and I, you know, birds of a feather flock together, as they say, I love utopians, <laughs> but I was astonished by how many utopians, fellow utopians, seem to think that by going back to the gold standard, we would have, you know, we would then get utopia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that that was somehow the way to get utopia. Um, and I, I was, I can't tell you how many people to whom I had to say, do you have any idea 
what the reactionary implications or consequences of your position are. Or, maybe better put, do you have any idea who your intellectual sisters and brothers were a hundred years ago who were advocating for the gold standard? They were the Wall Street bankers. They were, it was J.P. Morgan. All of, the, all of these people who these folk, my fellow uh, occupiers, would have denounced and viewed as sort of the you know, avatars of Satan a hundred years ago were the primary exponents of the gold standard. It was un, it's unbelievable. So let's say let's talk a little bit about gold um, and you know sort of how it ever came to be a money or used as a kind of currency um, and why we stopped using it in this way. So the first thing to start with is there seems to be an assumption that gold became uh, a, a money substance because it was precious. That you know the basically the preciousness of it is what made it sort of monetizable or made it a good money. The truth, if you look into the history, and most archaeologists I think would bear me out on this, the truth seems to be the other way around. Gold came to be perceived as precious after it came to be used as money. Hmm. Now why would that be? That might sound at first kind of counterintuitive. How could that be? But it actually makes perfect sense if you just go back in history a little bit and think about how this happened. So way back five, 6,000 years ago, in the earliest, some of the earliest civilizations, mm-hmm. over in the, Medi- uh, in the uh, uh, basically in the, in the sort of Euphrates and in the, in the Nile Delta region, basically Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia, the, the economies of these first civilizations, as you know, were based on agriculture, basically grain growth, right? Barley, sorghum, those kinds of things. And as you know, agriculture is subject to the vagaries of the weather, right? Sometimes you get great crops, sometimes you get really poor crops, okay? If you think about it, that means there's a swing, there's a cycle in agriculture, just like as there is, yeah, there's a volatility there, right? So at some point, somebody got the bright idea that, well, you know what we ought to do is during the so-called fat years, when the yield has been great, we ought to save some of this stuff and put it into a store so that when we then have a lean year, when there's a bad crop, we can use the grain that we've stored right, to kind of tide us over. And that will smoothen the cycle. And of course, the residue of that story or that idea is in the, old, in the biblical uh, book of Genesis, right, where Joseph advises the Pharaoh right, to save up, store up grain during the seven fat years because there are going to be seven lean years. That's pretty well established. Now, here's the thing. This was such an important and vital function to store that grain during those fat years because mm-hmm. the lean years were going to come, that it wasn't left to private individuals. So this is going to get us to what should be socialized, too, believe it or not. Um, this wasn't just left to chance, right? This became a public function. Basically, the authorities who sort of were in charge would make grain requisitions of all of the farmers and say, okay, we need you to put this much into the store, the community store, so to speak. It was very communal in a, mm-hmm. in a sense. Um, and what you would do is when you would go and make your grain deposit into the grain store, you would be given a sort of a token. And, and the early tokens were made of clay, a kind of a baked clay. And the token signified that you had put in your store. So you can think of your grain requisition as a kind of tax. Mm-hmm. And then you're given a token to symbolize that you've made, you've paid your tax, so to speak. It's a little bit like the stamp on the back of your hand when you go to a club, you go out dancing on a Friday night or something, you know, and you go in, you pay, they stamp it. So that way if you go out, you can come back in without having to pay again. They were like that. But now here's the thing. They use clay because, you know, you can kind of stamp the authorities, mm-hmm. the grain gathering authorities' insignia on it, like it's an official stamp, right? And then you bake the clay, and so now it has the, the stamp that's sort of official in it. And then so people, you know, are getting these tokens regularly when they deposit their grain. And then all of a sudden they realize, hey, you know what? These tokens have a certain value. They represent 
proof that I've made my grain payment, so to speak. So when the authorities come and ask somebody, right, have you made your payment, they can check, you know, they can show them the token, right? So um, now here's, here's how these tokens begin to circulate as money. You can think of the token as a vertical sort of thing. The authority who requires the grain or the tax is above in the hierarchy, and then those who have to pay the tax are below in the hierarchy, so it's vertical. This vertical sort of phenomenon develops a horizontal use. And the easiest way to sort of explain how that happens is, let's say you and I are neighbors. Let's say you've got kind of bad land. Your land is not very productive for whatever reason. You just got a bum steer. There's a lot of salt in your soil or something. I have really good land. So I can produce like twice as much grain as I'm required to do. On the other hand, I don't know how to make shoes, or I don't know how to make clothing, or I'm not an artist or anything, and you're really great at those things, and you're my neighbor. So I say, hey, you know what I'm going to do? How about we do this? Um, I will produce extra grain and deposit extra grain at the granary. I'll get extra tokens in return, and I'll give you some of those tokens. Mm -hmm. And then in return, you'll give me something that you make, like mm -hmm. you make some shoes for me, or you make some clothes. And so the token becomes a mode of payment, right? The vertical significance right. of the token gives it a horizontal capacity to be used, right? All right, so that's sort of the story about circulating money. It sort of starts as a vertical thing and it becomes a horizontal thing mm -hmm. precisely because its verticality lends it a, a kind of a certain feature, right? Now, if you go as, as, as this sort of practice sort of spreads outside of the ancient uh, Middle East, into the Mediterranean basin, up into southern Europe, uh, Italy, Greece, and mm -hmm. so forth, over across Anatolia, into India, into China, across Central Asia. The same practice is, is, is conducted, but the climates are different in these mm -hmm. places. They're not as dry, and they're not as reliably dry. Uh, and so clay is not a particularly useful or durable substance if it gets rain on it. It might become soft again or whatever. So you need some other substance that's soft and malleable enough to stamp an insignia in, just like clay, but that's more durable in the sense that it won't dissolve when it gets wet, and ideally it won't even corrode, right? And what is that? Well, gold. Gold does not corrode. Iron, of course, does corrode. Iron coins were never good back in those days because they rust, right? But silver, gold, those metals were free of corrosion, and at the same time they were malleable, so you could put an authoritative stamp. So the, the coinage that came to be used in the ancient world was metallic, and it was metallic using specific metals that had specific properties. And so naturally, then, gold and silver come to be viewed as valuable, but it's not that they were valuable and therefore came to be used as, 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 as monies. It's that they came to be used as monies and hence came to be viewed as valuable. And now, of course, we move, instead of the pharaoh or the high priest's stamp in the, in the, in the clay, You've got, you know, the Roman uh, King Tarquin, or you've got Caesar's stamp you know, on the coin, or Alexander the Great's. So that's how gold comes to be used as a kind of currency, right? Uh, and it, but it was all, it was a sovereign money, right, from the get-go. It was always, it was a vertically issued thing, right? But in terms but, of how it is unreliable as a standard and, and volatile, and, and, and just in relation to blockchain and cryptocurrency in particular, how, how do they measure up? So here's the problem. The, the problem with, with letting gold alone be the money is that it can't grow. It's not the, 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 the desideratum here, the thing that we've, the holy grail, so to speak, that we've always sought as monetary cultures is what is known as an elastic currency. Mm -hmm. And that this, this goes right into, this ties right into the volatility matter. Elastic means you can adjust the quantity of it, right? You can expand it or you can contract it. And the key is, in order to deal with the cycle, you want to be able to contract it when there's a boom underway, 
and you want to be able to expand it when there's a bust underway. That's acting what we call counter-cyclically. You're acting against the cycle. In effect, you need somebody to be a contrarian, a giant contrarian acting against the cycle to smoothen the cycle. It's like Prozac, basically, right? Well, I guess Prozac is a pretty blunt instrument. Actually, so, so is gold. But in any event, you need the currency in that sense to be elastic. You need to be able to adjust the quantity on it. And as we do it now, we do it li literally daily. And one of the things that you do down at the New York Fed, there's a trading desk down there. Every single day, this trading desk is buying and selling, buying or selling treasury securities with so-called dealer banks in order to affect the amount of money that's out there. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is to lean against the wind, as one great Fed chairman put it, to act counter-cyclically. Now, if, you, if your currency is dependent on the, the amount of some physical substance, like gold, it's not elastic, right? It gradually grows as more gold is discovered in the mines, but there's no easy way to sort of take it out of circulation. Furthermore, you can't put it into circulation at a really rapid rate. You know, you have to kind of get a bunch of it and then smelt it. It takes a while, right? There's a lag time, getting back to that lag time problem. So if you want, if you want a lever that's like a fine-tuned sort of thing, if you want a scalpel rather than a cleaver or a sledgehammer, you need something much more sort of movable, something much more elastic where you can change it on a dime. And metals that, you know, the, 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 the amount of metal out there is an accident. It's not up to us, right? We're not, we're not responsible for how much there is. You know, the good Lord put so much in there and, and that's all there is, right? right. Um, so what you need is, you, what you have to realize is if we're, if we're going to be free, if people really are going to be free, they have to take control of what actually is within their power. Mm -hmm and then use it wisely, right? Gold, the amount of gold is not sort of within our power, right? There's a certain amount out there, it's a finite quantity. So what we sort of figured out was that, you know, we can't, we, ha we need a so-called elastic currency, and there are various ways you can introduce elasticity, right, into the currency. So yeah, so, so, the, so I think one of the motives that appears to be driving the kind of excitement about Bitcoin, at least among some of my sort of fellow utopians, is that those of them who are sort of misguided in the sense that they think that Ron Paul and, and, uh, and J.P. Morgan in 1903 was right, that the problem is that the currency has been debased because there's too much currency out there, which of course there isn't at the moment. Um, one of the, 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 those people sort of think, I think, of Bitcoin as a kind of latter-day gold, a kind of 21st century gold. And the reason for that, in turn, is because part of the idea behind Bitcoin was to have an artificially limited supply. You're going to say there's never going to be more than a certain number of Bitcoins that are ever produced. And the rate at which they can be produced, even before you reach that threshold, is inherently a slow rate, right? You can't kind of put out a ton of them all at one time, right? Why is that? Well, it's because you have to basically, you have to decode certain, basically you have to be a coder and you have to figure out a particular protocol. It's like solving a puzzle in order to earn your Bitcoin. And so the thought is that there's a sort of an inherent time lag in the production of or the earning of a Bitcoin, hence in the issuance of a particular Bitcoin. And then again, the fact that the total supply has been set in advance, it will never pass this particular threshold, makes it sort of like gold in that sense. It's inherently scarce. And so the thought is that it will therefore retain value. But that's you know fine. But you know gold inherently retains value in that particular sense. I mean, gold is still pretty expensive. If you want to buy an ounce of gold, you're going to pay quite a bit of money for it. But we don't use it as currency. Why is that? Even though it retains its value, so to speak. 
It's because it's not use, it's not it's not a feasible sort of currency, right? Because in order to be able to accommodate the transaction volume that occurs in an economy as gigantic as ours is, and you know we have a huge right gigantic economy, to be able to, to accommodate that transaction volume, you need much more money, so to speak, than there are gold coins or gold bricks or bitcoins or any other sort of cryptocurrency. For one thing. For another thing, again, you want to be able to adjust the supply, and you can't do that with Bitcoin. There's no authority that has the power to sort of take Bitcoins out of circulation if they're over-issued, although that's not a danger. They're never going to be over-issued because they're always going to be under-issued. So essentially what Bitcoin amounts to, in my view, at least as far as investment goes, is it simply another investment? It's another asset class. It's just another thing that people can speculate on the value of and buy some of in hopes that it'll go up in value in the future. Uh, and sometimes it will and sometimes it won't, right? It's probably going to be you know, zigzagging for quite a bit. So it's it's incredibly know? volatile. Very, very volatile, right? And that's exactly what you don't want in a currency, right? You want a currency to be more or less stable. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the point of what the Fed's open market operations do, right? The whole idea is to retain the same basic value over time. We need there to be at least one thing out there that we can assume is going to be more or less the same tomorrow as it is mm -hmm. today, so that then we can plan around it. If you have zigzagging currencies, like the wildcat currencies of the 19th century, where when they were issued by private banks, that made the economy itself quite volatile. And if you look at the financial history of the United States, you look, I mean, there were these crazy, crazy crashes, crazy booms and busts every 10 years or so, right? There's just multiple such things. And a lot of it was precisely owing to the fact that you had this very volatile, not just a one volatile currency, but a volatile set of currencies. And I think, you know, Bitcoin is just the beginning. It's already volatile. But what do you think happens when Ethereum becomes almost as popular, say, as, as Bitcoin? And what do you think happens when we get a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth that are sort of up there in the same mm -hmm. stratum with Bitcoin? It's just wildcat currencies all over again that fluctuate in value relative to one another. That's fine. They might very well be assets that are worth investing in, just like other assets that we have out there. Subprime mortgage-backed securities were worth investing in up to a point, right? But they never became monies, and there's a very good reason for that. And, and what's the role of the central banks right now with... So the central bank is essentially, to go back to that metaphor I used before of the pulling the lever, sort of adjusting mm -hmm. the currency supply, making use of the fact that it's elastic, the central bank is the lever puller. What the central bank does is it says, there's too much money out there right now. How do we know? Because prices are going up too rapidly. That means there's too much money chasing too few goods. That's the sort of cliche way of saying and it. And how are they going to, are they possibly going to regulate Bitcoin? Or is there some sort of operation B in place? Yeah, Bitcoin is already falling now, falling now under regulatory scrutiny. You might have noticed a couple of weeks ago, the SEC announced that they've now got Bitcoin on the radar. Bitcoin is a sort of an interesting, um, uh, poses an interesting question for purposes of financial regulation because we have several different financial regulators that have different sort of bailiwicks. So the, the two who have classically sort of struggled for, you know, over turf, jurisdictional turf, have been uh, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or CFTC on the one hand, and then the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC on the other. Um, the SEC, strictly speaking, is supposed to deal with securities, right, financial securities. Uh, the, the CFTC deals with commodities, precious metals among them. Um, and it's sometimes, and, and of course various commodity derivatives, it's, Bitcoin has some of the attributes of a commodity, 
but it also has some of the attributes of a security, a financial security. Mm -hmm. So it's not clear whether the SEC or the CFTC is the appropriate regulator. Happily, not that much hinges on it now as compared to, say, 10 or 15 years ago, because after the Dodd-Frank Act, we have a, a kind of, basically the CFTC and the SEC are more or less on the same page. They're all part of the FSOC, which brings all of the regulators together. And so we don't really have to worry as much about certain things falling through the cracks as we used to have to worry about. But in any event, we do know now that the SEC is keeping an eye on them and is considering whether to get them designated as securities for purposes of the securities laws. That would then require all sorts of disclosure uh, surrounding the issuance of any new coin. You, as you know, people are talking nowadays of so-called ICOs, right? Initial mm -hmm. coin offerings, just like an initial public offering. The analogy to a stock offering is not an accident, right? These things are financial securities of a kind. They're investment objects or investment vehicles. Um, so they're coming under regulatory scrutiny in the sense that um, the issuers uh, are going to have to disclose a lot more information to the would-be investing public mm -hmm. to make sure that nobody is hoodwinked or tricked. Um, and then certain anti-fraud rules are going to kick in uh, to make sure that you're not um, basically swindling people uh, in the markets for these things. Um, and in that sense, they might very well, very soon, uh, end up being sort of domesticated in the way that various other kinds of security are domesticated. Um, how much of, of the industry right now, given that it is crypto, is uh, made up of, of those who do not want anyone to trace their money? Um, yeah, well, see... Money laundering. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so the funny thing is, precisely owing to that motive, it's hard to know what percentage of the market they are, right? Because they're they're trying to remain hidden and they're partly succeeding in doing that. What evidence, what sort of anecdotal evidence we have suggests that this is a substantial part of the market. But what substantial actually means here, does it mean 28%, 80%, 12%? That's a tough call. It's just hard to know because there's so much success thus far in, in maintaining secrecy. But there's definitely, that's definitely one motive. Now, my fellow utopians are not among this group that I'm about to describe. But the anonymity, the, the, remember I, I said that oftentimes a, a benefit carries with it risks. So the, the benefit of cryptocurrency is the crypto part of it, mm -hmm. the very fact that you know a lot of stuff doesn't get sort of disclosed to everybody when you, you know, you, mm -hmm. it's, it's good for certain kinds of financial privacy. But the flip side of privacy is you know, sort of illicit secrecy, is black marketeering. Um, is you know terrorist finance or drug finance or things like that, um, and as you know, um, a lot of you know there's a lot of anecdotal evidence coming in that money launderers and drug traffickers and arms traffickers and terrorist financers and so forth are using cryptocurrencies precisely because of the crypto bit in order to kind of conceal their identities. If um, if say they were to be regulated, would is it retroactive? Would some of this money have to be exposed? My guess would be that the regulators would make the disclosures to the regulators themselves mm -hmm. retroactive, but that they wouldn't. That wouldn't necessarily mean public disclosure. Um, there are ways we have happily, basically, financial regulation itself has become a much more sophisticated mm -hmm. thing than it used to be. But we've we've sort of learned over the last ten or twenty years or so, even longer, really, that it's a lot easier to regulate some institutions if you can get them voluntarily to hand over certain kinds of information to the regulators. And oftentimes they'll be much less reluctant to do that if the regulator itself can assure privacy in the sense that they won't disclose it to other people, right? right? 
And I suspect that that's probably where we're heading with Bitcoin or with, with cryptocurrencies, that probably we're going to get to a point where the regulators require information to be disclosed to them, but there will be a warrant to the effect that none of this will be disclosed to competitors or to other sort of private parties out there. That's super interesting. Oh, great. Uh, we'll be following it for <laughs> Oh, probably for, for a many, while. many months to come. Yeah, this is just only the beginning, really. This is, this is 101. Yeah, yeah. Get ready yeah. for 202. Yeah. <laughs> and there's <laughs> right. a whole other aspect of this coming exactly. that we're working on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks, TYT. Robert Hockett, it's been a pleasure. Well, thank Thanks. you, Nomi. Thanks a million.